You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. Let's look in chapter 7 and remember what has happened so far. Nehemiah has received permission from Artaxerxes. He has gone back and um, he is supposed to rebuild the walls and the gates of the city. And he met with great opposition right away. And uh, again, mostly from Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite. But there was also uh, obstacles and adversity from within. People were taxing their own people and um, exacting usury on their own people. He had to deal with all of that. But in 52 days... In 52 days, the walls and the gates have been rebuilt. Now, why was all of this necessary? Why was it necessary to rebuild the walls and the gates? Well, what we read just at the beginning in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, the people had been living all around Jerusalem. The temple had been rebuilt, but because there were no walls and gates, they were constantly under great affliction, constantly under great reproach. So it was necessary to rebuild the protection around that from their enemies. Here's the question, though. Now that this is done, what's going to happen next? We've reached Nehemiah chapter 7, and the main job that Nehemiah sought to complete is done. He has rebuilt the wall. But as Nehemiah looks around Jerusalem, he sees that there's still so much work to be done. There's some practical things to be done. For instance, look in chapter 7, verse 4. Now the city was large and great, But the people were few therein, and the houses were not builded. 50,000 people around came back to Jerusalem, but because Jerusalem was a ruin and it had no protection, people didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived in the cities around. Verse 5, And my God put into mine heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people, that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And the rest of chapter 7 contains a register of the people based off of the register, actually, that Ezra took in Ezra, or or that, I'm sorry, that Zerubbabel took in Ezra chapter 2. And that register is going to be instrumental in Nehemiah's next objective, which is to repopulate Jerusalem. And that can be done now because, and it can be done safely because of the walls that have been built. However, what every good leader knows And it doesn't matter what type of leader you are or how many people are under you. What every good leader knows is that people are the most important work. You can ask a manager. You can ask a team lead. You can ask a pastor. You can ask a a chief executive officer. They will all tell you what is your most important work, and they will say, say, "My my most important work to be done is the people that are under me, the people that I am leading. There's always work to be done in many different aspects, but people are the most important because you can have the most noble goals, you can have the best laid plans, you can have a reasonable timeline, but if your people aren't cared for, none of that really is going to amount to much. And that leads us to part number two, the rebuilding of the people. It has been 52 days of constant labor. It's been 52 days of a lot of worry, 
of attacks from without and even stress from within. 52 days of barely any sleep with, with men not even be able, being able to go home. And immediately after they finish, Nehemiah is already thinking of the next step. And he's, he's thinking, I need to gather all of the people to Jerusalem and we need to take a register of them and figure out which ones are going to live within the city. But before people can be rebuilt practically or socially or how, however you want to put it, people need to be built spiritually. And that is a lesson for all of us. If, if we as leaders of our homes or, or leaders of businesses, whatever, only focus on the practical things that need to be done and we push the spiritual things to the side, we only focus on the financial health and the physical and all of that and we never focus on the spiritual and keeping, God's first, keeping God first, we are not going to go very far in any venture that we have. So that leads to chapter 8. Again, you see that huge register there in chapter 7, but it leads us up to chapter 8. They finished the wall on the 25th day of the 6th month, and four days later, it looks like Nehemiah gave them some rest, four days later, on the first day of the 7th month, all the people gathered together in Jerusalem. And it's amazing, the people ask Ezra, Ezra comes back on the scene, and they ask Ezra to read them the law of Moses. So Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. Now, I don't know how far he got, but he did read for six hours straight. And verse 4 through 12 of chapter 8 kind of describes how this day progressed for the people. So Ezra stands on this pulpit of wood so that everybody can see him and everybody can hear him. I mean, it's possible there's tens of thousands of people there. And when Ezra opens up the book to read, everybody stands up. And Ezra, bless the Lord, the people are shouting amen as he's reading. But then throughout this time, he has 13 men uh, specifically assigned, along with all of the Levites, to start working their way through the crowd and explain to the people what Ezra had read. Look in verse 8. So they read in the book, of, uh, in, the book in the law of God, distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And as the people begin to understand what the law of God says, they begin to weep. They begin to cry. They begin to mourn. And maybe you're asking why. Why would they be weeping? Well, think of where they're standing. They're standing in the middle of Jerusalem. Yes, the temple has been rebuilt and the walls and the gates are there. But the rest of the city is ruins. The rest of the city has been brought down to the ground. And all throughout the scripture that Ezra is going to be reading, they are going to be hearing warning after warning and chance after chance and forgiveness after forgiveness that God has given to them. But everything that is surrounding them right now is their own doing because of their disobedience and because of their rebellion. Look at all that God has promised us as his people and look at what we have done with it. And they begin to cry. But then Ezra and Nehemiah start going through and say, no, 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 absolutely not. This is not a day to cry. This is not a time for sadness. This is a good day. Yes, we have sinned. And yes, we have to take the blame for it. But look at how God has brought us back. And God has brought us back because he has a purpose. There's a reason for it. If we are here, it's because God's covenant is still in effect. The covenant that he gave to Abraham has still 
survived through all of our rebellion. And look in verse 12. All the people went their way to eat and to drink, to send portions and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. The next day, a smaller group of people come together, really just the leaders, and they read in the law, hey, in the seventh month, you're supposed to have a special feast. You're supposed to have the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, and that's exactly what they do. Uh, they call all the people together, and they have that feast for about a week. They're reading the Bible the entire time. They're praying. They're confessing uh, throughout the whole thing. And look at the very last sentence of verse 17. There was very great gladness. And I wrote down in my Bible... Sometimes hearing God's word can bring sadness because we see that our life does not match up to what the Bible is saying that we should be. But when we simply obey, when we just apply God's word to our life, it will always bring gladness. You have sadness at the beginning of the chapter and you have gladness at the end because they heard and they obeyed God's word. And that leads us to chapter 9. It's almost the end of the seventh month, uh, so maybe 20 days later, and we find the people fasting and mourning, and they've separated themselves from, from all of the, the strangers in the land. It's only God's people here at this time in, in chapter 9. And for three hours, they read God's word, just for three hours straight. They read God's word, a fourth of the day. And then for another fourth of the day, the next three hours, they confess their sins and they worship. Now, maybe you're wondering, they have been reading a lot of God's word. They've been hearing a lot of it. People have been explaining it to them. What good is it bringing to their life? What, what fruit is coming from it? And all you have to do is read the rest of Nehemiah chapter 9, and we will see exactly how God's word can have an effect on people's life. The people begin to pray, and their prayer shows how deeply hearing God's word and having it explained to them, uh, how deeply it has affected them. Because look in, look in verse 6 through 8. What book of the Bible does this sound like to you? Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all. And the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abram, and broughtest him forth out of the earth, the Chaldees, and gavest him the name of Abraham, and foundest his heart faithful before thee, and madest a covenant with him, to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Gergesites. Give it, I say, to his seed, and hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous. What, what book of the Bible is that describing? That is obviously Genesis. What about verse 9? And did see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. What book are we talking about now? Exodus. Ezra has been reading them the law, and they're saying, okay, that's the message of Genesis. God made everything, and out of everything, he still chose us. And then in verse 9 through 20, they're going to talk about Exodus and Leviticus. And then in verse 21 and 22, they're going to talk about Numbers and Deuteronomy. You can tell that they had talked about their history, because in verse 23 through 25, they're going to talk about Joshua. Uh, in verse 26 through 28, they're talking about everything that happens in the book of Judges. And then in verse 29 through 31, they talk about everything that's happened between 1 Samuel and 2 Kings. So this prayer that they are bringing forward 
They're basically saying, Lord, we see our history. We see it. We see what happened in Genesis. We see Exodus and Leviticus and the laws that you gave to us. We see it all that led up to our kings rebelling and our people rebelling against you. And that is why we are in the position that we are in. And yet, you have preserved us to this day because you are gracious. Look in verse, uh, let's see here. Look in verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who keepeth covenant and mercy, let, uh, let not all the trouble seem little before thee that hath come upon us, on our kings, on our princes, and on our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all thy people, since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. But look at what they say in verse 33. Howbeit thou art just. In all, that thou, uh, in all that that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. Lord, our position, we don't want you to miss it. It's not a small thing that we are in the position that we are in right now, but we deserved it. We deserved it. And they go in the next few verses and they say, here's why we deserved it. We, we rebelled against you. Now, what is their position? Their position is in verse 36. They say, behold, we are servants this day in the land that you promised to us. Yes, we are here, but we are servants. Everything that we have is being funneled into Babylon because of our sin. So look at what they say in verse 38. Because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. We are going to enter into a covenant with you, Lord, because we understand our position, but we want to do better. We want to do right. Chapter 10 lists all the people that enter into this covenant with God, and it starts from the leaders, and it goes really all the way down to the common people. Now, this is something that I want you to write down. Even if you're not usually taking notes, I want you to write these down, even just in shorthand, because they are going to come back later. There's four parts to this covenant that they make to, as they put it, walk in God's law. Part number one is given in verse 30 of chapter 10, and here, here it is. They say, we are not going to intermarry with, heathen, with the heathen people in the land. So that's part one. We will not intermarry. Part number two is in verse 31. And they say, we will keep the Sabbath. Part number three is in verse 32 and 33. And they say, we will maintain and care for the temple. And then in verse 34 through 39 is the fourth part here. They say, we will not forsake the house of the Lord in the matter of tithing. So let me repeat those because it's very important for us to remember. Part number one, no intermarriage. We are not going to intermarry with the heathen. Part number two, we're going to keep the Sabbath. Part number three, we're going to maintain and care for the temple. And part number four, we're going to tithe. We are going to make sure that the Levites and the priests are able to do their job by bringing in the tithe. So that's very good. Those are very good things. That's a great covenant to make with the Lord. Um, and honestly, now that the spiritual side has been taken care of and the people's focus is on God's word and they're, they're entering into this fantastic covenant, uh, it's, it's time to go forward. And now we can focus on the practical 
aspect of things, the practical rebuilding, and that's what happens in the next couple chapters. So in chapter 11, using the records, remember that Nehemiah took based off of the original records from Zerubbabel, um, it was determined that the rulers of the people all need to live in Jerusalem. They need to be there. And they need to be watching over the city. But then also they cast lots. It's, it's almost if they, they drew names, if you would, out of this register to move 10% of the people from kind of the outer areas and move them into the city so that they could rebuild the houses and repopulate the people. Some of the people even voluntarily said, we will move into Jerusalem, and they were commended because of it. Now, verse 3 through 19 lists some of these groups of people that are going to start living in Jerusalem, and these records are going to be very important for the future uh, and, and just uh, practically for Israel. But then verse 20 through 36 of chapter 11 is kind of talking about, as the Bible calls them, the residue of Israel, people who are living outside of Jerusalem. Again, very important records for uh, where people are going to be living and, uh, and their future, their ancestry, and all of that. Uh, chapter 12 starts tracing the lineage of priests and Levites, and it goes all the way back to the priests and the Levites that came back with Zerubbabel in the very first return. And it follows their lineage all the way down to the priests and the Levites that are now serving under Nehemiah. Now, why is that important? Well, because when you look back in the law, the law that they have just read, it's very clear in the law that the priestly line needed to be kept pure. It needed to be kept undefiled. These were God's representatives to the people and the people's representatives to God. And that's why the Bible says that we are a royal priesthood. We should be God's representatives to the world, and we should be able to pray for others to, to bring their needs before the Lord. We should be praying for the souls of man constantly. And, and more than that, we are to set the example. The priests were in every way to be above reproach. So this lineage is going to show how they kept it pure and how they kept it right, and they needed to focus on that in order to do their job properly. In verse 27 of chapter 12, um, it starts talking about a very important day, and it leads all the way up to the end of the chapter. And it's a very important day where the walls are dedicated. Uh, it's time for the walls to be dedicated to the Lord and Nehemiah kind of divided the leaders into two different groups, and they all start in one spot outside the walls, and they walk in different directions, and they're praising, and they're singing the entire time, and they walk in different directions, and they meet at a gate where they can enter in, and they all start congregating around the temple, and they give thanks, they sing. Look in verse 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. Special people are chosen to gather in offerings and anything that people wanted to give. The singers and the porters are all praising and thanking God. And that leads to chapter 13. On that day, on that very day, um, in chapter 13, Nehemiah is going to start sharing now some good news and some bad news. So what do we want to hear first, good news or bad news? We'll start, with the, we'll start with the good news. Okay, good news first. Good news is in verse 1. On that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. 
because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them that he should curse them. However, our, oh, I'm sorry, howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. It came to pass when they heard the law. So apparently this commandment of the Lord was unknown to them. Uh, they hadn't heard it before. Now that was their fault. They should have known what God's word said uh, in his law. But it is a good thing that as soon as they found out what God's word said, they obeyed it. Now, remember what God told them as they were coming into the promised land. You are going to get into Canaan, and you need to get the Canaanites that are within the land out. But then also, there are Ammonites and Moabites, and they are going to be all around Canaan, and they have no business being in the promised land. Uh, and if you remember from Genesis 19, both Ammon and Moab came from that horribly immoral relationship between Lot and his daughters. So they need to go. No Ammonite, no Moabite, uh, especially because they hired Balaam and they didn't give the children of Israel bread as they were coming in the way to Canaan. So they need to go. So here's a question. Was this a common issue? Was it a common issue for the Israelites to allow Ammonites and Moabites to come into the city of Jerusalem and just live there and, and, and have business and commerce? Yeah. Yeah, it was a very big issue. In fact, here's where we start getting into the bad news. So would you agree with me? It is one thing entirely to be engaged in something that is wrong, but you don't know is wrong. Now, as soon as you know it's wrong, you need to stop it and you need to move on, okay? It's another thing entirely to be engaged in something that you absolutely know is wrong. There is obviously a difference between those two. And here's why I'm bringing that up. Who were the two men who gave Nehemiah the most trouble? You had Sanballat, the Horonite, and you had Tobiah, the who? Tobiah, the Ammonite. Okay? So Tobiah was an Ammonite. Well, Nehemiah goes to tell us that Eliashib, the priest, liked Tobiah. So Eliashib goes into the temple and clears out one of the storerooms in the temple that was supposed to be housing the tithe and the offering and the vessels of the house of the Lord, all of that, all of that that was supposed to store it, he clears it out and he makes Tobiah his own little apartment in the temple. Now, Nehemiah is very quick to tell us, look, this did not happen under my watch. In fact, look in verse 6. Uh, he says, in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. This did not happen while I was there. Uh, apparently, and if you look back at it, you can tell that Artaxerxes, when he said, Nehemiah, okay, you can go back and build the walls and the gates. When are you coming back? Nehemiah had told Artaxerxes, I'm going to go. I'm going to do my job. And once it's done, I'm going to come back. And, and obviously he did. He returns to Jerusalem. But then the Bible says in verse 6, after certain days, I obtained leave of the king. In verse 7, and I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. 
So Nehemiah cleans house, right? So I don't know how long Nehemiah was gone from Jerusalem, but in that time, Ammonites are not only living in the land, there's one living in the temple. So again, there's something about being engaged in something that maybe you didn't know was wrong, but they found out it was wrong. Ammonites and, and, and Moabites, they're not even supposed to be in the land. Get them out. Here's one thing that you definitely know is wrong. Whether he's an Ammonite or an Israelite, nobody lives in the temple. That's not what the temple is for. Um, so Nehemiah, and you can picture it if you would, just starts going and grabbing all of Tobiah's stuff and throwing it out the window. And he grabs all of the vessels and he brings them back. But now think about it. Wait a second. What was that room supposed to store? That room is supposed to store the tithes and the offerings and all those things. So Nehemiah is going to start thinking, okay, if Tobiah has been living here, where have you been keeping the tithes and the offerings? And he looks in verse 10 and he says, well, people haven't been tithing. And the Levites and the singers had to all return home to their fields to work the fields just to be able to make a living. So the people had stopped tithing. So first you have Tobiah living in the temple. Next you have the people stop tithing. So he says, you need to start tithing again. Why is the house of the Lord forsaken, he asked them. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah leads the people to begin tithing again. But that's not all. In verse 15 through 22, Nehemiah tells us people were forsaking the Sabbath. They were working on the Sabbath. They were selling on the Sabbath. Merchants are entering into the city on the Sabbath to sell to the people. So Nehemiah says you need to lock the gates the evening before the Sabbath and do not open them again until after the Sabbath. Well, the merchants are used to coming in on the Sabbath. In fact, it's probably the day that they made the most money. So they get used to coming into the Sabbath and they find the gates locked. And Nehemiah says they start camping around the gates for a night or two. Uh, a couple different times on the Sabbath, they start camping around the gates. And look at, what, look at what Nehemiah says in verse 21. Then I testified against them and said, uh, said unto them, Why lodge ye about the wall? If ye do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath. I like Nehemiah. <laughs> but hey, would, would, would they rather Nehemiah lay hands on them or God lay hands on them? Nehemiah says, you have no business here on the Sabbath day. You need to go. And so they end up going. Look in uh, 22b. Look at this prayer that Nehemiah brings out. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also. Spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. But that's not all. Verse 23 through 28. The people are intermarrying with the heathen. Now stop. Did you write down the four things that the people had covenanted with God in chapter 10. What were the four things that they covenanted? We will not intermarry with the heathen. Well, that's what they're doing in chapter, uh, in chapter 13. What else did they say? We're going to keep the Sabbath. Are they doing that? What's number three? We're going to maintain and care for the temple. There's an Ammonite living in the temple. And what was the last thing they said? We're not going to forsake the house of the Lord in tithing. And were they doing that either? No. After this intermarriage, Nehemiah is walking around the city and children are running around. They can't speak Hebrew. They're speaking Ammonite and they're speaking all the other languages, but they, they can't speak Hebrew. And um, 
People are even marrying the Philistines. People are uh, marrying Ammonites and Moabites. I mean, the people that they had just said were going to, to put out of the city, they're starting to intermarry with them. And look at what the Bible says. The Bible says in verse 25, I contended with them and cursed them, smote certain of them and plucked off their hair. <laughs> okay, okay. So Ezra, when he finds in Ezra chapter 7, I'm sorry, in Ezra chapter 8, that the people are doing right, he pulls out his hair. Nehemiah finds people doing wrong here. He pulls out theirs. Well, he shouldn't have done that. Well, when we get to heaven someday, maybe we can ask Nehemiah why he did that. But look in verse 29 here. Oh, uh, before that, look in verse 28. One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was son-in-law to who? Sambalat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. There's another good mental picture there. But the priesthood is supposed to be pure. The, the priesthood is supposed to be undefiled. You're supposed to only marry people from your nation if you are a priest. And this man is, is marrying a heathen lady, the, the daughter of Sanballat, one of the biggest enemies that Nehemiah had, one of the biggest enemies that Israel had. So look in verse 29. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I them from all the strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business, and for the wood offering at times appointed and for the first fruits. And here's how the book ends. Remember me, O my God, for good. I would say God remembered Nehemiah. He gave him, his, he gave him an entire book in the Bible. God answered his prayer. No matter what Nehemiah faced, think about, think about it first. What was he first trying to rebuild? I'm trying to rebuild the walls and the gates and think of all that came against him. But no matter what Nehemiah faced, he said, I'm not giving up on the wall. It must be built. The work must be done. But then he gets into rebuilding the people and he faces opposition there too. But he takes that same effort. He applies that same mentality. He determined in his heart, I am not going to give up on God's people. I'm going to keep on praying and keep on working and keep on leading. And there are so many truths that we could take from this book. For, but for sake of time, I'm only going to bring out a three. I had four, but I'll only do three. First, the first one, how does Nehemiah apply to our life? The first is this, the lesson we can learn. The hearts of people are always prone to wander. The same heart that says, I want to make a covenant with God one day is the same heart that deceives us into sin the other day. And we are seeing the devastating effects in our world today. We're seeing the devastating effects in, in politics, it just you name it. In our schools, even in our churches, we are seeing the devastating effects of people simply following their heart. Following their desperate, their desperately wicked and deceitful heart. Talk about abortion. Talk about the dependence on drugs and alcohol. You read that story of a five-year-old boy shot down in cold blood for no reason. Only a desperately wicked and deceitful heart can lead a man to do that. 
Only Satan in the heart of in the heart of somebody can lead somebody to do that. But we're following our heart, and that leads to shallow churches. It leads to shallow marriages. It leads to shallow relationships. It leads to shallow devotional lives. It leads to broken families. It leads to full restaurants and bars and empty churches. Now, I'm not talking about us tonight. But the heart of man is always prone to wander. But number two, what I see from this book, all it takes to shift the direction of an entire nation is one person who, would, who will sincerely and wholeheartedly work for God. Many people are prone to wander from God, but somebody who will buck that trend and say, I'm going to work for God. D.L. Moody said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him, and by God's help, I aim to be that man. Now, before any of us say, I could never be that person. I could never be that man. Here's really what I'm going to come down to and, and apply for our church tonight, and I want us all to get this. Are we focusing in? Before we say, I could never be that person, I could never be that man, God could never use me in the way he used Nehemiah. Let's be reminded of who Nehemiah was. He wasn't a prophet like Moses. He wasn't a general like Joshua. He wasn't a king like David. He wasn't wise like Solomon. He wasn't a preacher like Haggai and Zechariah that are on the scene at this time. He wasn't of royal descent like Zerubbabel. He wasn't a scribe like Ezra. He was a cupbearer. He was a man of prayer. He was a man who saw a need and had a burden to fill that need. And when he prayed, he didn't just say, Lord, fill the need. He said, Lord, use me. Use me to fill that need. He was a man who simply made himself available. The greatest ability of a Christian is availability. He was a man who relied on God to navigate constant opposition and adversity. He was a man who placed the priority on the spiritual, and that led to success in the practical. He was a man who never gave up on his work. He was a man who stood for what he knew was right. Name one thing on that list that we could not do. No, we may never be a Moses. We may never be an Abraham or a David or a Paul or a Peter or a John the Beloved. But I am fully convinced everybody can be a Nehemiah. And in fact, the entire application of my message tonight comes down to this. You can be a Nehemiah. In fact, the more Nehemiahs there are in a church, the more Nehemiahs there are in a family or in a school, in a nation, the better off those places will be. There is not one church or city or country in the world that doesn't need more Nehemiahs. Nehemiahs know how to pray. 
That is something that all of us during this time should be doing more and more. We should be growing in our prayer time. Nehemiah see needs and they fill them all around when we come to church, when we go out to our work, when we go out uh, anywhere and we see people. There are needs everywhere. We need to open our eyes to that and fill those needs. Nehemiah's don't give up when times get tough. There are so many that Jesus talks about, like when, when the seed comes, they receive it with joy, but when the sun comes up, they have no root in themselves, and they're offended, and they leave. So many people come to church, or they try to get right with God. They want to do what's right, but when times get tough, that's when they leave. We are only as strong as our weakest moment. Right now, we are going through some difficult times. This is the time that we need to be strong. This is the time that we need to keep on moving forward and keep on working for God. Nehemiah see the big picture. They understand that God's word must come first. Nehemiah's take initiative. Nehemiah's may be a little rough around the edges, but they get the job done. And Nehemiah's are seen and remembered by God. I challenge you to be a Nehemiah. Every church can use more Nehemiahs. I challenge you to be a Nehemiah. Now, this should be our last question before we're done. Where is Jesus in Nehemiah? You remember from two weeks ago what we talked about, and think about, think through the story. Think about through tonight. Where is Jesus in Nehemiah? The only answer we can give is he's not there yet. He's coming. He's on his way. He has been promised, but he's not there yet. Haggai told them when they built that new temple, the temple that Nehemiah had just dedicated the walls in, that temple, Haggai said, the desire of all nations is going to come into this place. Christ has been promised. In the meantime, what does Nehemiah show that we're supposed to do? It's just time to watch. It's time to watch for him. Both Ezra and Nehemiah showed that. Watch for him. Look in God's word for him. And you know what we see in the book of Nehemiah? The best way to watch for Christ is to work for Christ. You cannot watch without working. There is no watching without working and warring for Christ. And that's, that truth still applies today. Because just as Jesus was promised to come back then, he's coming back again. He is coming back again today. And the Bible says, Jesus said right before he left, occupy until I come. There is work to be done. There's work to be done on the temple of our heart. We need to put that up and keep it strong. There's work to be done in walls that need to be built. There are gates that need to be guarded. There are enemies that need to be fought. But I will say this right before we end. The greatest work that we will ever do for Christ is with people. There is no greater work we will ever do for Christ than in the hearts and with the souls of people. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature is what Jesus told us to do. To go forward with the gospel because Jesus is coming again and we are commanded to watch. The best way to watch is just to get to work. Be a Nehemiah. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, 
or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.